And in every story here, there's a story of noble, sacrifice, selflessness, using your strength for others, laying it down for others. Welcome to Life, Love, and Family. Seven men and the secrets of their greatness. Heroes, role models. We were made to be courageous. We were made to lead the way. We could be the generation that finally breaks the chains. We were made to be courageous. We were made to be courageous. We were warriors on the front lines, standing unafraid. But now we're watchers on the sidelines while our families slip away. Where are you, men of courage? You were made for so much more. Let the Hi and welcome back to Life, Love and Family. This is Dr. Tim Clinton. Today we're going to talk about the crisis of manhood in our country. And men in history have made a huge difference. Men whose lives are worthy of emulation, of following. Washington, Wilberforce, Bonhoeffer, Jackie Robinson, even Chuck Colson and more. Our special guest today, Eric McTaxis. He's the author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Bonhoeffer. And also the bestseller Amazing Grace, the story of William Wilberforce and the heroic campaign to end slavery. He's authored over 30 books. He's currently the voice of Breakpoint, a radio commentary broadcast heard on over 1,400 radio outlets with an audience of 8 million. Metaxas was the keynote speaker at the 2012 National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. and was awarded the Canterbury Medal in 2011 by the Beckett Fund for Religious Freedom. He's written for Veggie Tales, Chuck Colson, The New York Times, and he's our special guest. Eric, welcome back to Life, Love, and Family. My pleasure, Tim. Thank you so much. I'm going to try to croak through my allergies here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Having heroes, role models, it's always been significant, Eric, to our culture, to our society. But modern-day manhood, something's just radically happened. People talk about the crisis of manhood. I think it's a disaster. Yeah. Where are you at, Eric? Well, that's why I wrote this book. The reason people say, why is the book seven men and it's not seven people or seven women? or what? Because we have a crisis of manhood in the culture. Last 40 or so years, we've been confused about everything. But, you know, if man is the head of the family, if the father is the head of the family, if God set that up, we've got to ask ourselves, what does that mean? And really, aren't the problems that we have with family, with culture, with society, doesn't it stem from this fundamental misunderstanding of what is a man? What are we telling our young men? I mean, that's ultimately why I wrote this book, so that we can begin to talk about this again. And I talk about all this stuff in the introduction to the book. And then I give seven men I would consider heroes worthy of our emulation. If we can look at these lives, what will it teach us about what it means to be a man? That was my basic thinking. Eric, you opened up talking about the Duke, John Wayne, and Chuck Connors from the Rifleman. I was smiling. I think, throwing the Duck Dynasty, guys, we're on our way here for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> The funny thing is, you got to say up front, people get real religious, right? And they say, well, I, the only role model I have is Jesus. Now, if that's what Jesus wanted, then I'd go along with that. But it's not a biblical view. We are supposed to have people who are fallen, broken, but who nonetheless fight in their lives to be noble. We're supposed to look at those folks. These are the heroes in the faith. Okay, if I can look at Paul, Paul was a sinner. He was not Jesus. 
but these are all people that we're supposed to look at and emulate. And John Wayne and Chuck Connors and the Riflemen, these are images. They teach us something. They were not perfect, but if we cannot look at men and say, hey, that's a man. Okay, what is he getting wrong? We can talk about maybe that's not perfect, that's not perfect, but what is he getting right? What do I see there? And there are things that you see in old movies and so on and so forth that teach us something about manhood. Why were old movies and TV shows comfortable trying to teach young men about what it means to be a man, to be brave, to stand up against bullies? You see those things in old TV shows, old movies, and of course, in my book, these are not TV shows and movies. These are real men. But what is it about the culture that we used to be more comfortable with saying, be a man, this is what a real man is like, and today, for the last 40 years or so, we've shrunk from that. We're, we're uncomfortable talking about heroes, unless it's kind of cartoon heroes. But why is that? To me, that ultimately is why we got where we are in the culture, and we need to talk about that. Eric, before we jump into the, the seven men on the list, the characteristics, the qualities about manhood that resonated with you as you began to just turn the pages, if you yeah. will, and, and look into the heart of those who separated themselves. What were those characteristics? Well, the number one thing, and, and of course, Jesus is the ultimate example of this, it's heroic sacrifice. And what does that mean? It really, it's expressing the agape love of God to say that I will cast myself down so that others could be exalted. Jesus died for us who were his enemies, who were sinners. Isn't that the heroic model? And that every man wants to do something heroic, whether it's for his family, for his nation, something beautiful and noble and true that gives his life meaning. That's what God has in mind for men. So every one of these seven men, and people might ask, why'd you pick these seven? I could think of 50 others that I like better. Well, Number one, it's a subjective list. I'm not going to pretend this is like the seven greatest in the history of the world, but these are seven with whom I was acquainted and who I thought worthy of acquainting the world with. But the one thing that held every story together for me was that in each case, in these seven men, there's something noble and sacrificial, heroic. They each said no to something. They sacrificed something that any sane person would have said, oh, you don't need to do that. Again, starting with Jesus, when he says that he's going to go to the cross, his friends are thinking, no way, no, no, do not do that. And he says, I will do it because I want to do God's will. Now, in the case of every one of these seven men, George Washington is the first one. They do something almost crazy. Washington sacrifices his chance, really, to be the first king of America, King George I. And it was a legitimate thing. We, we, don't, we forget all this, but we need to remind ourselves of what this man did. And he gives that up. He sacrifices that. And in every story here, there's a story of noble sacrifice, selflessness, using your strength for others, laying it down for others. That's the cardinal virtue of true manhood. Eric Washington, when you said he could have been king, I was just amazed at how you moved in and out of his life, what he wrestled with, how he championed things, stayed the course in spite of everything coming against Washington, and how God instrumentally just began to continue to orchestrate his steps to a place of prominence and influence, and then how you're right. In the midst of this power move, if you will, in his life, he sees the nation as more significant than his own desires, if you will. One thing that needs to be said is that in the last 40 or so years, we have not been teaching 
young men and women the great stories of our history, right? We have yeah. shrunk from the whole idea of heroes and role models, and we kind of had this attitude like, hey, who are we to, to set up anybody? Everybody's messed up. Washington was a slave owner. And, you know, we go on and on, and we focus on this negative stuff. Well, don't you think that our culture suffers if we cannot teach young men and women about our great forebears? Washington, when you take him as a whole, warts and all, is one of the most heroic human beings who's lived in history. King George III, who was our enemy, the tyrant across the water, when he heard the story of George Washington, the general of the enemy forces, that he had laid down this offer, really, to be the head of this new nation, that they had said to him, you know, you should be king, Congress can't pay, and, and it's a big mess, you should just become a military dictator, you'll be a good dictator, do it. You have every right. And he did. He says, no. He lays down this legitimate concept. He lays it down. He says, no, I have been fighting for these ideals, these noble ideas of liberty and for this new nation of America, and we cannot start out this way. Now, I tell you, when one person does something like that, the ramifications are endless. I mean, we cannot even imagine why... Uh, he did that. It was just a superhuman effort. But why? Because he had a faith in something larger. He knew that if he did the right thing, history would applaud him. It might not happen, uh, you know, right then in his lifetime, but he knew that history would applaud him. He's playing to the audience of one, history, God, what is right and wrong. I mean, we've got to, again, teach these things. We've not been teaching these things generally, but specifically, you talk to some 80-year-old about Washington, they were taught in grade school about the great George Washington, hmm. uh, about his character, all this kind of stuff. We focus on all the negative stuff, how, oh, he never said, I cannot tell a lie, he never chopped down the chair. Like we, we only focus on that, because that's what we've been doing since the 60s. But, okay, let's put that aside. Can we talk about why he was great, and was he great? And I'll tell you right now, he was as great as it gets in this world, it's just uh, a powerful story, and I'm thrilled <laughs> that he's the number one man in my book, Seven Men. Eric, two questions related to Washington. One is, why do we have to neuter the greats? What is it about modern-day society? And I think it's more of a modern-day phenomenon. Yeah. That we've got to neuter everybody. Yeah. I, I mean, I write about this in the introduction, and, and by the way, nobody could skip the introduction. In fact, if you read nothing else, read the introduction, because <laughs> I break all this stuff down. We have to figure out why did this happen. Part of it is, again, the 60s created sort of a counterculture, right? Something happened where we began noticing, like, okay, all men are wife beaters and they're trouble, and so we don't want men to be strong. Okay, well, that's a bad idea right there because strength used for God's purposes is noble strength, right? So instead of teaching young men that your strength is either for yourself or you shouldn't be strong. How about teaching them God's idea of strength, that your strength is a gift from God for His purposes, which means to help those who are weaker than you, whether it's women and children or other men in your life, that God gives you strength for His purposes. Instead, we've had this false choice between saying that, hey, strength is for me, and I've got to protect me, and you know, beat my chest and be like a macho, athletic, ball-spiking, end-zone-dancing, me-me-me figure, whether it's in sports or whether it's, you know, Donald Trump putting his name on everything, or we've said, oh, you know, strength is bad. Strength is used to hurt people, so we want to denigrate the very idea of strength. We want everybody to have equal strength 
but we have not taught young men especially the idea that God has given you strength for others. It's chivalry. It's this beautiful idea. We've destroyed that, and so consequently, we emasculate what is masculine because we see it as threatening. Well, okay, there's a side to that, that we have to see that young men need to use their strength for God's purposes, but you don't want to say, because I might use it wrongly, we need to throw it in the garbage. But you could take this, Tim, to a national level, right? You see this false egalitarianism among nations that we say, oh, we don't want America to be strong because America has been a bully around the world. We should be equal to, you know, a European socialist. This is what's happening on a national level. We've sort of bought into this false worldview, again, coming really out of the 60s, that says any kind of strength is a patriarchal, bullying strength, and we need to cut it down a notch. That's where we've been for 40-plus years. Makes me insane, Eric. It really does. Well, of course, because it's simply wrong. And that's again, that's why I wrote the book. I said we need to talk about this, and we need to show examples of strong men who did what? Use their strength for others. Wilberforce, the second guy in the book, what does he use? His influence, his intelligence, his power for what? For powerless African slaves. He didn't need to do that, but he did it because God called him to do it. God calls every one of us to use what we have for his purposes. What a noble story. He gives up the right to be the Prime Minister of England. Everybody says he would have been the Prime Minister of England, but he gave over his politics not to aggrandizing himself, but to doing the right thing, fighting against the slave trade, fighting against slavery. Again, a noble picture of from history. It's not a novel. It's a true story. You know, the long version is in my book, Amazing Grace, but people say, why do you put Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer in here? Well, other than the fact that I think that they're two of the greatest men who ever lived and they need to be in here, but if you're not up to reading a longer book, you still need to know this story. It's just scandalous that we're not teaching these lives to young people. Eric, I have a son, 17, Zach, and I'm just thinking about as I've gone through this, this is a great way to communicate father to son. The Wilberforce message, just give me a bite-sized piece. This is what you need to know about him. First of all, what they don't really show in the movie Amazing Grace, now that's a good movie, right? Right. But kind of like the movie 42, it's a good movie, but because it's a Hollywood movie, they shrink from the real heart of why he did what he did. Wilberforce did what he did because around age 26, he had this dramatic conversion, and suddenly he gives his whole life over to God's purposes. Now, this is a guy who had incredible power politically. He had genius. Everybody said this guy's an amazing genius. He had oratorical skills, debating skills. He had the ability to win over people on the other side. He was very witty and charming and all this stuff. And he says at age 26, God has come into my life, and now I see that he's given me all this for his purposes. I'm not going to leave politics. That's another famous part of the story that he thinks, okay, I've given my life over to God. I guess I've got to get out of politics. That's really dirty. And his friend John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, the hymn that the former slave trader hero in his own right, says to young Wilberforce, no, stay in politics. Who knows but that God has created you to do great things in the world of politics. And so here's a guy who takes everything he has, all his talent, and gives it over to God's purposes. And for the next almost 50 years, works on a host of things. Number one issue, if you know nothing else, you remember that this is the guy who led the battle for the abolition of the slave trade. Even before abolishing slavery, the slave trade was the, the ugly thing. He led that battle. That's the story of the movie Amazing Grace. But then you see that he did so much else. 
And if you want an example of how one man can change the world dramatically, I mean, it's really shocking, except it is true. This is the story. He did what he did. He gave it over to God's purposes. And by the time he died, the world was dramatically different. I mean, it is a true story. (laughs) Amazing story. Tell us about the Flying Scotsman. Oh, man. This is another thing. You know, you forget. Time flies, right? So you forget that 30 years ago, there was a movie called Cherry to Fire. It seems like five minutes ago. It's 30 years ago. So most young people don't know the movie. Talk about a great movie. If, if there's nothing else that comes out of my book, is that people may want to watch Cherry to Fire. There's the story of a guy who was the fastest man on planet Earth in his day. He was from Scotland, and he was going to be in the 1924 Olympics, and he was pretty much guaranteed a gold medal in that event. But there's one small problem. This guy was a very serious Christian. His parents were missionaries. They took the Sabbath extremely seriously. And he found out that the first heat that he would have to run in for the 100 was on a Sunday. And for him, it was open and shut. I can't do that. Now, you can imagine the king, the leaders of the United Kingdom are coming to him and saying, are are you crazy, young man? This is an opportunity to bring Olympic glory to your nation. We've never had a gold medal you must do this for your country. And he says, you know what, I would love to, but I serve God first, I will honor God first, period. He was just not going to bend. And to us it seems a little crazy because, you know, on the Sabbath, like we're running around to the mall, we don't take this stuff so seriously. But in this day, it was real clear. He refuses to run. I won't tell the story, the whole story, because I hope people will read the chapter in my book, but holy guacamole, was this (laughs) guy, to do the right thing for God, and then how God redeems it. Mm-hmm. It's just incredible. He gave up the most legitimate thing in the world, which was the right to run, to get a gold medal. He says, no, I'm going to sacrifice, I'm going to give it to God, and we'll see what God does with it. And we see what God did with it, which is more amazing than what he would have done with it. I guess he shocks the world that he doesn't take an easy gold medal, and he becomes a hero for doing the right thing. I mean, the movie Chariots of Fire if people will watch that movie and see what happens when a young man who really has noble ideas, that he doesn't compromise his ideas, it's just such a beautiful thing. We have to think, like, only 30 years ago to have a movie really glorifying God that was not even made by Christians. To me, it's one of the best movies ever made. A German Lutheran pastor, theologian. Yeah. Well, I've talked so much about Bonhoeffer, but I know there are plenty of people that they're afraid to read a 600-page book. Although, let me tell you, (laughs) Everywhere I go talking about Bonhoeffer, people say, I normally don't read long books, but I started reading and I couldn't put it down. Well, that's not because of Eric Metaxas. That's because the life of Bonhoeffer is pretty much the most fascinating thing I've ever encountered. Bonhoeffer was the German pastor and theologian who, because of his radical faith in Jesus Christ, stood up for the Jews of Europe, stood up against Adolf Hitler, again, cast everything he had on God and is a hero among heroes. I mean, he was killed by the Nazis in 1945, right before the end of the war. But the legacy of this genius, this hero, this saint of God, it just shines and shines. And I said, if people don't want to read the long book version, at least they got the 25-page version, because you got to know who this guy was. Eric, a favorite quote or two from Bonhoeffer that just locks inside of you. The big one that I always use, he said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. So anybody who's kind of keeping quiet on certain issues, Bonhoeffer says, yeah, you know, you can't. Now, you got to say what you're going to say in love, but you need to speak up, because if you don't speak up, the strong 
powers arrayed against you and God's purposes, they win. If everybody would just open their mouth a little bit, it makes it easier for everybody. Bonhoeffer was real clear that I've got to speak out, and I know I may not be popular, but I've got to speak out. I think we're living in a time when that is true. When you talk about the biblical view of sexuality, uh, when you talk about things along those lines, you need to speak up, because when people are quiet, something happens, the other side wins. And I think the church has wrongly bought into this idea that, oh, I don't want to be political, I just want to preach the gospel. Well, there is no gospel being preached if you're not speaking up against injustice, against untruths. You've got to speak it in love. If you don't speak it in love, don't speak it. But if you say nothing, that is not love. And so I think that there's a courageous, heroic element to speaking the truth when it's not easy to do, but God is with us when we do that. To me, that's the Bonhoeffer story. The number 42 is resonating with a lot of people out there right now, Eric, and there's a reason for it, and the guy associated with that number made your book. Oh, well, it's so funny, because when I wrote the book, I knew I was putting Jackie Robinson in the book, because (laughs) I've known his story for a long time. I had no idea a movie was coming out, like right around the week my book came out. So I said, that's got to be the Lord. I couldn't believe it. But this is a story... Even this movie, again, they don't tell the real story that the reason Jackie Robinson, he had the strength to do what he did, was because of his faith in Jesus. He was a very serious Christian. The movie barely, like, hints at that. This is a guy who was taught by a pastor, Carl Downs, again, this is in my chapter, to not fight back. That's a heroic thing. When Jesus said that, there's a heroic element. It's not weakness. It's strength, greater strength than the guy who fights back powerful story. And then the guy who recruited Jackie Robinson, this is what blew my mind, the guy who recruits him to do this, Branch Rickey, the famous general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, was a very serious Christian and did what he did for Christian purposes. And then when he recruits Jackie Robinson in their first meeting in Brooklyn, he opens up a book called The Life of Christ, turns to the passage in the Sermon on the Mount, and quotes the words of Jesus to Jackie Robinson. Some of the first conversation they ever had in the first minutes there together is the words of Jesus about turning the other cheek. Now, that's not in the movie. Certainly, it is in my book, and it needs to be in every brain to know why Jackie Robinson did what he did, why Branch Rickey recruited him to do what he did. It wasn't just wonderful secular forces fighting for civil rights. Why did they do that? Why did they fight for civil rights? Because they believed this was God. This was what the Lord wanted them to do. That story needs to be known, and everybody needs to know that Jackie Robinson did what he did because of his faith. Talk about heroic. He gave up the right to fight back. Again, everybody in the book sacrificed something huge. To fight back when people are calling you these names and spiking you on the base path and all this stuff, that's got to take real nobility, real heroism, and that's the story of Jackie Robinson. John Paul II made the book, Eric. Uh, tell us about his inclusion. Oh, man, this is another one. A lot of people don't really know the story of Pope John Paul II. Talk about a hero. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic or not. I'm not a Catholic, of course, but this is a guy who stood up against the Nazis, stood up against the communists. I mean, at a time when your life was on the line, a heroic man, and it all came out of his faith. As a young man, he was a man of prayer. It's so beautiful to see that this guy, from the beginning, was touched by God, and frankly, he was a real man's man in the sense that, you know, he was an athlete, he was a skier, he was uh, just an incredible figure. We think of him 
most of us in his latter years when he was hit with Parkinson's disease and really suffering. But when you see the vibrancy of his life before that, I remember I was just a kid. I write about this in the book when I was, I guess I was 15, when he became Pope. And the whole world was electrified. Who is this guy? First of all, he's not Italian. Second of all, he's kind of young and vibrant and has a sense of humor and charm. What a figure on the world stage. We need to remember that his faith led him to stand up against communism and that with Thatcher and Reagan nobly stood up against the evil empire of the Soviet Union and ultimately, by standing in faith, brought that down. Again, everybody needs to know that story. Yeah. One of my favorites in your book, and it's how you kind of wrap things up, was someone who had personal impact in your life, Eric, Chuck Colson. Yeah, you know, Chuck Colson was not going to be in the book for the simple reason that nobody could be in the book if they were living. I was not going to put any living people in the book. But Chuck Colson, who I had the honor of working for and uh, eventually befriending, he fell ill a little bit over a year ago. I was there. I introduced what was his last speech. He was stricken in the middle of the speech, and I was there when they put him on the ambulance. I mean, it was this bizarre, moving moment. I just loved this man and looked up to him so much. And when I knew he was on his deathbed, I realized he has to be the seventh man in this book. There's no doubt about it. And I, I was joking around with his widow, Patty, and his daughter, Emily, just a couple weeks ago. I said, you know, he bumped Lincoln. Lincoln would have been the, uh, the seventh man or one of the seven. But uh, when Chuck passed away, I said, there's no doubt the story of his life needs to be known, just like all these stories, because not that many people know it, especially younger people. And by the way, it's a man who I knew personally, so I can vouch that this is not some cartoon figure. This was a real guy. He was not perfect. But boy, oh boy, did he shine God's light through his life. He sacrificed on a number of occasions, just like everybody in this book, made a noble sacrifice that has affected, at this point, millions. Eric, those are big names. Washington, Wilberforce, Bonhoeffer, Jackie Robinson, Chuck Colson, and others. I'm just a country boy. What's your message to me? You think of these men as great, but let's understand that they were men just like we are men. They were people. They were sinners. They were broken. They were redeemed. They gave whatever they had over to God's purposes. The message is, first of all, know these stories to be inspired. Don't we need to be inspired? Doesn't every young man need to be inspired? Who who are we looking at in the culture right now? I mean, when you flip on the TV or watch movies, there's little doubt that we're not getting pictures of this kind of unbridled greatness, heroism, nobility, even chivalry. There's not a lot of examples of that. We need those examples. They will make us better. It's God's desire. I mean, all you have to do is read Philippians 4. Whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are of good report, whatsoever things are true. I mean, we're supposed to look on these things. Well, these lives are part of these things, these things that we're supposed to look at and behold. Something happens that God uses it to strengthen us and to show us not just the worm in every apple, but the beautiful apple. You know, not just the problem with the hero, but the hero, the heroism. We've got to look on those things. And as a culture, we've not been doing that. And again, young men especially need to do that. But we all do. This is a book, you know, I'm hoping people will buy it for graduation, for Father's Day, for that kind of thing. But honestly, anybody can read this book. A lot of friends have been giving it away for Mother's Day. These are just seven amazing lives that when you read about it, you can't help but be inspired.
Our special guest today again has been Eric Metaxas, author of Seven Men and the Secret of Their Greatness. Well, thank you again for listening to Life, Love, and Family today. We want you to become a friend of our family. You can go up on our website, lifeloveandfamily.net. Today's fact sheet, it's free of charge to you. You can go up there and download it. Just information about the influence of men in our culture, what it means to be a good dad and more. And you can also get connected with us through Life, Love, and Family by following us on Facebook or Twitter. And we'd love for you to support our ministry. You can do that by simply just calling. It's toll-free, 855-455-3264. Thanks for listening. Life, Love, and Family. 